Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 15, and we're reading from verse 14 through to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 33. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to Him for it this morning. Before we sing again, let's join together in prayer as Paul encourages us to, not just for the church, but also for the world. Let's pray together. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for your word this morning. And Lord, as we come before it, an ordinary group of people, we ask that your most extraordinary word might illuminate our minds, might be brought to bear on our lives and show us, Lord, how we are to walk into this coming week, how we are to live for you and love you, how we are to be your people walking worthy of the gospel with which we've been called and saved. Lord God, we commit ourselves to you, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would meet us in it, and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. As I've mentioned a couple of times, with it being Reformation Sunday, it seemed to work out quite well with the passage in God's providence that we have before us this morning. There is always in the church, and always has been, a great desire to to grow and to learn. Once we have become Christians, we recognize that there is this process of growing and maturing, and part of that is always wanting to know more, always wanting to do a little bit better. But the difficulty that goes along with that is that we sort of assume that as we grow, we will move on to greater and weightier matters, and we will leave behind the things that we once held dear as children leave behind toys. This is something Paul talks about, doesn't he? That as a child, he was consumed with childish things, but now he's become a man. He has left those childish things behind. Now, what Paul isn't talking about here is uh, theology. What Paul is talking about is the life that he has left behind and the new life that he has embraced and how it goes forward. But our problem, I think, as Christians who are serious about learning God's Word and understanding it, is that we want to move on to weightier matters. We want to learn more about theology or or to understand more about mission and how we engage the world with the gospel and so on, and we leave behind the simple things that, that were important to us once but have lost a bit of their excitement. And the fascinating thing for me, as I have spent the last 10 or so years um, preaching through the Scriptures, and particularly preaching through the New Testament, is really just how little there is in terms of the variety of what the the gospel writers, Paul or um, Peter or James or John, write about. What they write about is essentially the same thing over and over and over again. It's the gospel. That's it. They never move beyond the gospel. All they do is take the gospel message, the good news that Christ has come and has voluntarily died for sinners, such as you and me, that when we cast ourselves upon him and ask for his mercy, he forgives us our sins and adopts us into God's family all by his grace freely. There is no price attached to it. There is nothing we could ever give that would justify it. We're given it freely. And all they do is take that message and apply it in a thousand different ways to people's lives as different circumstances crop up. And so you hear the same kind of message coming through in Romans again and again and again as Paul addresses divisions within the church, struggles with sin, challenges with growth in the Christian life. It all comes back to the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. That is the bedrock, the foundation upon which everything else is built, regardless of what it is or how old we become, how mature we are. It doesn't matter. We never, ever go beyond the gospel. And on Reformation Sunday, this is essentially a celebration of that reality. This is what Luther went back to as he nailed the 95 theses, his 95 arguments against some of the things that the church of his day were doing. Because he believed, Scripture taught, that what the church was doing in his day was detracting from the gospel. It was It was shining a light onto something else and saying, do this and you will find forgiveness, freedom, salvation, growth, maturity, and all these other things. 
And Luther said, none of that is right. And I don't care if a pope says it, or a church council says it, or a theological college or a church says it. It doesn't make any difference. The Bible says the gospel is the beginning and the end, the be-all and end-all. And if we add anything to that, then we've gone in the wrong direction. Now, he had to face a whole lifetime from that point on of great difficulty and challenge, but blessed the world beyond imagining because of his desire to never go beyond the gospel. For all that Luther was very much an imperfect man, as were all the Reformers. And the challenge for us this morning as we look at our lives as a Christian people, if you're a Christian, is how do we grow and develop? The answer is the gospel. If you're not a Christian and you want to know what all of this is all about, the answer is the gospel. If you are struggling under the weight of your sin and you don't even necessarily know what that is, but you feel just burdened by this great weight in your life, the answer to it is ultimately the gospel. And Paul lays that out for us here in the closing half of chapter 15 as he begins to draw this whole letter to a close. We only have two more sections Uh, to go in the book of Romans before we're finished. The gospel, Paul says in verses 14 to 16, brings transformation to people, any people, all people, regardless of who they are and where they're from. We remember that Paul was writing this letter to a, a church that's struggling because it contains within it Christians who have a Jewish background and Christians who come from a Gentile background. And that word Gentile means every other background in the known world at the time. It means anything and everything. So you have this incredible mix of people all in the same place trying to figure out how do we live together and love one another and worship God together with all of the stuff that comes from our culture. What is bad and needs to be laid aside? What is good and should be kept? How do we hold these things together when they seem to conflict and um, contradict one another? And Paul says, ultimately, you were transformed by the gospel, regardless of where you came from. And so that is our starting place. When he begins this little section, he notes that the believers in Rome are doing really well. He says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers. Wouldn't it be lovely to have somebody who's writing bits of the Bible to tell you your church is doing really well? I'm really satisfied with you. I would love to hear those words. And maybe we will do one day um, if we get a chance to, to have that kind of conversation with the Apostle Paul. I'm satisfied with how well you're doing. Wonderful. But he points out he's not just sort of happy that they're there. You know, we're like that sometimes. We're so encouraged to hear that there is a church in Iran or North Korea or Pakistan or or wherever, places that are antagonistic towards the Word of God and, and the gospel and so on. We're just encouraged that they're there. That's fine, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying he's happy for specific reasons. He's happy because he's heard that they're full of goodness, he says. When they received the gospel, it transformed them from the kind of people that Paul's talked about at the beginning of his letter. You remember, there's just this great catalog of all the sort of sins that exist in any culture, in any society in the world. And Paul says the whole world is saturated by this, completely immersed in it, so much so that the world can't see anything else but their sin. And they think it's a good thing. 
They think it's satisfying and fulfilling and will lead to them doing better and enjoying life more. And Paul says it's only leading to their destruction. And the whole world is like this. The whole place is filled with darkness. And as we noticed, he spends several chapters outlining that before saying, but there is an answer. Jesus has come. The gospel. Paul says that's what you were once like. You were all like that. Chasing after sin the whole time. Only satisfied when they're satisfying their own desires. But now, he says, you're filled with goodness. Now that doesn't mean the sort of weak, anemic goodness that we talk about in our society today. If you ask somebody to talk about a church that they know or a minister or a missionary or something, they might say that they're a really good person. And what they mean by that is somebody who never causes offense, who flogs themselves to death trying to serve everybody round about them in a sort of nice way. And that's what they mean. They mean nice. It's not what Paul's talking about. He says they've been filled with goodness. Their desire is now not for whatever will satisfy. Their desire is for what is right, regardless of whether it's in the moment personally pleasing or satisfying or even comfortable for them. It might be massively inconvenient for them, but they're filled with goodness. They always want what is truly good, not what the world says is good, which is just whatever you fancy at the time. Paul says they're filled with this. It defines who they are. They are committed to their being goodness, righteousness lived out in their number and in the world around them. Because let's not forget, maybe this is just the way that my mind works. When we read this letter today, we remember that Paul's writing to a church. And my mind automatically goes to sort of this. A group of people all gathered together on the Lord's Day, worshiping God, singing, praying, uh, sharing in communion, and hearing something spoken of from God's Word. But Paul isn't just talking about that. He doesn't say, you're filled with goodness on the Lord's Day. They're filled with goodness all the time. So when they go out of their gathering and go back to being a butcher or a carpenter or a politician or a soldier or a slave or um, a stay-at-home mum or a grandparent looking after the family or whatever it might be, they are still filled with goodness. They bring goodness with them everywhere they go. They see it worked out, lived out, manifest all around them. It defines who they are. And it leads them to live out of pocket for the sake of those around them, especially their family in the church. It inconveniences them on the short term. It may lead to their suffering and their persecution. We know it did, not just from the Bible, but from historical sources outside the Bible that tell us what the Christians endured in Rome and how angry people were, not because the Christians were inciting rebellion and um, trying to be treasonous towards the emperor, but because the Christians were feeding the poor and looking after the sick and not asking for anything back in return. And it was a massive embarrassment to the politicians in Rome who couldn't be bothered to look after their own people. And the Christians were doing it. The outcasts in society, people who the Romans believed were atheists because they only believed in one God and not the huge pantheon of gods that the Romans believed in. They were a despised people. They were persecuted and oppressed, and they received very little but abuse back, but they brought goodness with them, rightness, wherever they went. They spoke for it. They expected it to be lived out in their society, and so they changed the place around them. 
They were filled with goodness, and Paul was pleased. Who wouldn't be? It's what every missionary, every pastor, every evangelist wants to see when they've heard that there's a church sprung up somewhere. They want to hear that the people are filled with goodness. The gospel has so transformed them, they're not just filled with goodness, though, Paul says, they're filled with all knowledge. That is not um, that they have all available knowledge in the world. They haven't become quantum physicists or um, anything else. What they are filled with is the knowledge of Christ and His work. They know the gospel inside and out, and they're applying it and applying it and applying it to themselves. And the impact of this is the, the way they live. They're filled with an understanding of what Jesus expects of them in my daily life as a carpenter, in my daily life as a tax official, as a soldier, as a slave. Whatever it is, they're constantly seeking to understand more about how they bring Jesus into this circumstance, this situation. And Paul says, I hear about you all the time, about how knowledgeable you are in this, in the Christian life. And it's amazing. Well done. It's what we all want, isn't it? This is the mark of the mature Christian. Somebody who is constantly not just living out the Christian life faithfully, but is seeking to learn how better to live faithfully in each circumstance. And Paul says that because essentially of the Holy Spirit that God has given them when they were saved, they have constantly grown in their knowledge. And they're teaching each other how to do it. Now, this seems very ordinary to me, you learn, you grow, and then you want to teach others. Christians have always been doing that. So much in the New Testament tells us that that's what we're supposed to do. And yet, we need to think about what Paul is speaking into here again. The culture of Rome is actually very similar to our culture today in a lot of ways. Rome has people, rather like Livingston has people, from almost every corner of the world. We have folks, friends of our fellowship, who come from a very specific sort of cultural and ethnic group in India that, that are numerous by our standards, but in the scope of the size of India are a relatively small group of people. We have folks in our community from the dark and far-flung corners of shots. Could you imagine anything worse than that? We have folks who are in our fellowship or who have been in our fellowship who are connected to Eastern Europe. We have people who live in Livingston that have come from all over the world. We spoke to some folks just this past week who've moved from Africa and Asia because they got a job in London and then the job transferred them up to Edinburgh and they didn't want to pay Edinburgh prices, so they moved to Livingston. There's people from all over the world and they bring with them all sorts of different views and understandings and cultural things that, that are commonplace to them but are utterly alien to us, and that's the same as Rome. They've got bumpkins from out in the countryside, and they've got sophisticated uh, Roman civilians. They've got people from North Africa and Egypt and Persia, and they've got people who fled from Parthia, which was engaged in constant warfare uh, with Rome. They've got people from Spain and Gaul and Germany. They've got folks from all over the shop. And these people have begun to become Christians because of the gospel. And now they're all in the same church together. And Paul is so encouraged that they're teaching one another because what we do naturally is congregate with people like me. People that, that look like me and talk like me because I don't need to make any extra effort to get on with you. We all know what we're talking about together. But that's not what the church was like and it's not what Rome was like. 
We tend to look down on people who are different, whether they're wealthier or poorer or they speak a different language or come from a different culture, simply because they are different. And so the tendency in the church will have been for all of the folks who are from Rome, the proper Roman citizens, just to be together in the Rome we group. And we'll have our own little house group, and we'll all meet together and read God's Word together, and we'll encourage one another. And the Parthians can all do that together, and the Egyptians can all do that together, because they are frankly weird. And we don't want anything to do with the people from Gaul and Rome and, and Germany, because they're just savage barbarians. But that wasn't happening. Paul was saying, you're all gathering together, and you're all teaching each other. Doesn't matter where you're from. So you have Romans teaching Germans, and you've got Germans teaching Egyptians, and you've got Egyptians teaching Persians, and they're all together because they've been transformed by the gospel. That has done everything. And it amazes Paul. He's so, so pleased. They're all growing deeper in their love for God, in their knowledge of God. The congregation is doing well, and everyone's talking about it. Paul hasn't been to Rome, but he's heard all about it maybe hundreds of miles away. It's just so amazing, the testimony to the power of God. And the reason that the gospel has done this to them is that the gospel is of and from God. The purpose of the gospel is to turn people from sinners into saints for the glory of God. And what's more glorious than taking someone who was dead and rising them up to live? And that's what it does. And these people are now growing in their knowledge because they're applying that fact that I have come from a place of death, a whole world of death and darkness, into a place of light. I now live in this world because I have rejected the old way, which was only leading to death and suffering. Now I'm going in this new way. I know that the things I ought to live for are the things that will further promote this this gospel message, this way of life. The gospel is infusing everything for them. The gospel is what unites them so everything else gets laid to the side. Everything, where they're from, how wealthy they are, whether they're slave or free, male or female, whether they work for a living or they are supported for their living by somebody else. None of that matters. What matters is the gospel has transformed them. And this speaks to today, I think, incredibly powerfully. To look at myself, I am uh, male, which means, according to this popular way of looking at the world in our society at the moment, um, I should be suspected every second of the day of being a terrible misogynist. I am also white, which means that I'm probably also a racist. I am, I have to just admit this to myself now, middle-aged, and that means that I probably don't really like young people and don't really care about them, and I'm generally dismissive of the elderly. I am heterosexual, which means that I am almost certainly um, a rampant homophobe and probably transphobic as well, and worse than all of these things, I'm a Christian, which means I'm the biggest bigot and hate monger around. When you add all of these things together, our society says you belong in this tiny little group, male, white, middle-aged, heterosexual, Christian, and you should never speak to anyone or anything outside of that little group. That's the only value you have in life. And the same is true if you are um, 
a woman and you're from Greece and you happen to be in um, engineering or whatever else it is, that is your place. Don't you dare speak to anyone outside of that. You don't have any right. Society is fragmenting into smaller and smaller and smaller groups and none of them are allowed to speak to anybody else. You have no right to speak about them because you haven't lived their life. You don't have their experience and it's utterly killing our society. And what's worse, it's killing the church. It's infecting everywhere. And the gospel denies all of that. Because the gospel peels off every one of those labels and said, look, none of these things, first and foremost, define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. And so it doesn't matter where you come from, what your gender is, your skin color, ethnicity, culture, age, whatever else it might be. All that matters is that Christ has transformed you. You can't do anything about those labels. I can't have any impact on my life about my my skin color, my gender, my age, or anything else. They've been given to me, as it were. I can't do anything about them. In the end, Christ trumps all of those things, and it means that when I gather with you, and when we learn together and grow together and serve together, we do so not because we are all white, middle-aged Christian men, because we're not. We do so because we're Christians. Because the gospel has brought a transformation to our lives that says, I can love you and serve you and even challenge you and rebuke you despite the fact you have a different skin color, language, culture, or whatever to me. Because what matters is that we grow together in this gospel that has transformed us. Paul uses the picture, and it's perfect, of the priest. The priest is set apart from everything else in his life for one job, the worship of God. That's it. Nothing else. And that's exactly what we are. Peter draws this out in his epistles as well. Everything we do know is about worship. And so all of those things that make up who you are are brought into that as a positive thing to say you add to the worship of God's people. What matters is is that you live for Him, obedient to His Word, so that you please Him in all that you do. The gospel is the way it all started, and the gospel is the way it all continues. As soon as something becomes more significant than that, we're in really serious trouble. The gospel doesn't just bring transformation to people, though. It brings transformation to places in verses 17 through to 29. Paul states that he's about the work of preaching the amazing people-transforming gospel so that he fulfills the ministry God has given to him. And what he goes on to say when I read it and really thought about it, it left me a little bit astonished. He says, I don't want to go around building on someone else's foundations. Now, Paul isn't being territorial here and saying, you know, I'm not really interested in partnering with anyone else in ministry. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I don't want to do the work someone else has already done. There's other places where the gospel hasn't gone, so I should go there whilst there are great faithful brothers and sisters working diligently away in that place. They don't need me there. They're doing a fine job as it is. And I was so encouraged when I read that, I was reminded of a conversation I had friends with friends of mine years ago who went off to be involved in missionary work in West Africa. And in the particular town and region they were in, they they were just there short term and wanted to stay long term and spoke to the guy who was heading up the local mission and said to him, you know, how can we 
best serve in this way. We want to come and stay. And he said, look, thank you so much for your service, but we don't really want you. It's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just that the gospel is being proclaimed here. He said, in this town, there is nobody who hasn't heard the gospel. There will be no one who stands before God on judgment day in this generation and says, I didn't know. They do, because we've been about this work for 10 years, and we will continue to be about it. There is all of the vast swathes of the rest of West Africa and beyond where the gospel hasn't been preached. Go and find one of those places and go and serve there with God's blessing. We love you, but but go where you're needed. There's no point in us all clustering together in this little town, in this little region. And they were kind of challenged by that. I think they were a little bit astonished because nobody ever says we don't want you to go and be a missionary here. But it was right. And Paul says exactly the same thing. And even more astonishingly, he goes on to say, you know, the fact that there's all these places that the gospel needs to be preached is what's kept me from coming to Rome. I so want to come and meet you. I want to see this amazing church that that I'm connected to through Christ. But there's just been so many places I've needed to go. And now the time has come, hopefully, after I've popped back to Jerusalem, I'll come and see you. And he says, there's nowhere else for me to preach the gospel here. (laughs) There's gospel preachers everywhere round about here. So I'm free to come to you now. And I was so encouraged to read that. It was challenging to me to think, could we say that of Livingston? Don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is there a place for more missionary work in Livingston? Perhaps. But at the end of the day, Paul says, now's the time. Because we've been about this work so hard for years. We've saturated the place with missionaries. There's always more work that can be done. But I don't need to be here anymore. I can go to Spain, and on the way to Spain, I'm coming to see you. The gospel is beginning to transform the whole place. Now, the church is still small, but it's gone everywhere. There's hardly a town anywhere without some little Christian gathering. There is hardly a place anywhere where there's not some little evangelist out there preaching in the town square and calling people to repentance. It's changing. And we know the entirety of the Roman Empire was transformed. Now, it took three, four hundred years for that to begin to feel felt in the Roman Empire, but it happened. The mightiest empire in the world at the time utterly changed. By who? By these people, (laughs) just normal people, but they've been transformed by an extraordinary God who's working through them. And so, we find the whole empire begins to be influenced, and society as a whole changes forever. And the same is true in our nation. I read in The Spectator just uh, this past week, uh, Novara Media, which is a pretty extreme left-wing media organization, was threatened with being shut down uh, on social media because of some of the things their reporters um, had said. And interestingly enough, loads of people, their sworn enemies, people who write stuff against Novara Media all day, every day, came out in their defense. And they did so because of the Christian heritage that exists in Western Europe, which says that while I hate everything you believe and everything that you say, I will defend absolutely your right and freedom to say it and to believe it. That comes from the Christian worldview that says we ought to be free, so that we are free to proclaim the gospel as much as you're free to believe it or not. We can't make you believe anything. The gospel isn't about forcing you to believe. It's about being free to say God has sent His Son. Believe on Him and know everlasting life. 
And interestingly enough, the last vestiges of that Christian heritage in this country rode to the rescue of a group that would happily, I think, shut down almost every church in our land. Because they must be free to say those things if we are to be free to share the gospel. It's how our society has been shaped, transformed by the good news of Jesus, that in Him you are truly free. So all those other freedoms don't really matter. So you can let people say what they want. You don't need to make them say or do anything. The gospel brings transformation to places, nations, peoples, not just individuals. And lastly, the gospel brings transformation to the church. We're probably fine with the idea that we preach the gospel in the expectation that sinners, those outside the church, are saved, come inside the church. It brings transformation to the world around us. But Paul makes it clear in 30 to 33 that there is an expectation that the gospel will continue to transform the people within it. He calls them to ardent prayer, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, because I'm going to serve a whole bunch of people you don't know and have never met, but I expect you to give everything you have to that task. You're never going to meet these people in this life. doesn't matter. I want you to pray because I've got important work to do in their midst, and I need your prayers. I need God to help me. And I need you to be thinking about that work. Now, there's a great argument uh, that's gone on for 2,000 years about whether, God, whether prayer changes God or whether prayer changes the one who prays. We're not going to get into that this morning. <laughs> I think prayer changes more than anything else the one who prays. But prayer is something that we are encouraged to bring before God because God uses means to accomplish His ends. And so when we pray for the lost, that is powerful, that is effective on their behalf because God has asked us to do it. And so I don't want to in any way do down prayer, but Don Carson once helpfully said, prayer reveals an awful lot more about the one who prays than anything else. And Paul says, I want you to be about, all about these other gospel-transformed people and about all these other unbelievers in Judea. I want you to be looking at them and not looking purely at yourselves. I want you to pray. Paul recognizes the church is always a mess. It's always a struggle. There's always new Christians. There's always people who are butting heads and can't get on. There's always sinful people saved by grace who are still struggling a bit with sin. And so Paul expects them to focus on the gospel as it goes out into the world as a reminder to them, I think, of the gospel that has transformed them in their midst. That Paul's going about spreading the good news, and that is to be what they are committed to themselves, so that by God's will I may finally come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all, he says. Paul urges the brothers and sisters in Rome to pray for him because he's got much to do and the going is going to be hard. He needs to stay faithful. They need to stay faithful. This is how God is glorified. He wants prayer because these things are beyond his ability to solve, beyond their ability to solve. And so he needs God to come and move as he goes about his work. The gospel brings transformation to the church as they dwell on the reality of what they're doing, the amazing gravity of what prayer actually is. You're coming into the presence of God and asking Him to, to do things in our world to transform it and to bless it. 
The gospel is not something we can ever move on from. There is no higher theology, deeper truth. There is nothing greater than this, that it brings transformation to our lives. It lifts us from death to life. It brings transformation to the place where we live because we are changed and live a changed life in the midst of other people. It brings transformation ultimately to the whole church as the church is refocused on God and on the glory of what he's done in Jesus so that we worship him, not just on Sunday, but every day as we go about the work of God in the world. So let us not move beyond the gospel this coming week. Let's remind ourselves of it every single day. This is where I come from. This is where I'm going. This is what I am doing, the gospel in everything. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the goodness of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that Paul, great a theologian that he was, recognized that he was nothing without it, and would be able to do nothing every day without it, and would be nothing in the future without it. And so, Lord God, we ask for each and every one of our fellowship this morning that we would not move beyond the gospel this coming week, that we would dwell on its wonder as a means of changing us from dead sinners to living saints that we would consider how powerful it is to bring transformation to the Roman Empire or to this country and then the rest of the world as it was spread by missionaries from this place, all over the place. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to dwell on its significance to transform the church, to keep us focused on the main thing, which is glorifying you in the praising of your name and in the sharing of the hope of the world with a sinful people who are lost without it. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel this Reformation Sunday, and we ask that you would have us dwell upon it richly and worship you because of it this week. And we ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.